nice you get to wear your warm weather clothes, right? One of the two or three days in Florida that we get to do that. Thank you for joining us, those who are with us live stream as well. I'm glad to have you also. Let me start by reading a quote in The Divine Conspiracy. Dallas Willard reminds us that where transformation is actually carried out is in our real life, where we dwell with God and our neighbors. First, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Now, if you're new to us, we've been in the sermon series 24. We're just talking about connecting with God, an extraordinary God in an ordinary day, 24 hours a day. We're, we're creating little hooks or reminders or triggers connected to the routines and habits of our day. So, for instance, when we wake up in the morning, we open our eyes and we try to remember first thing, what are we going to remember? Our baptism. Yeah, hey. It's our baptism. I was baptized. I belong to God. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. My identity is as the beloved of God. So then we go throughout the rest of the day. And the, the work that we do and the service we perform is out of that identity of love. Brushing our teeth, thanking God for a body, making our bed, and reflecting on the creation of God, even arguing with a spouse or with a friend, offering the peace of God. So just a way, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. So just a way to continue to remember God and connect God and worship God. It's a liturgy of the ordinary. So what's a liturgy? An order of service. We do that today. On Sunday, we're into our liturgy, so to speak, our order of worship. But every day, this is a Monday or a Wednesday or a Friday, we can think of it as a liturgy. These things that we're doing are acts of worship and ways to connect with God and, and enjoy God. So every Sunday, we're looking at three. And we're going to look at three more today, starting with number one, checking email, and I'm connecting that with work, and work is a form of worship, checking email and work. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 22, God says, my chosen ones will have satisfaction in their work. They won't work and have nothing come of it. Now, half the people on the planet have email. Probably 99% of us this morning have email. And for a lot of us, it's connected with our work. Some folks may be retired. A lot of us still are working in a vocation. And even retired folk keep busy and have work to do. So we have email. My email is connected with my work. I get email messages from my fellow staff members and from leadership in the church, notices of conference that are coming up. I send emails out. That's a part of my work. Now, just like some people make their bed and other people never make their bed, there are people who clear their inbox out Every day, it bothers them to have one unread, unanswered email in their inbox. they got to clear it out. There are other people, like my daughter-in-law, for instance, who might have hundreds or even thousands of unread emails languishing in their inbox. One lady after this first service this morning, she showed me how many unread emails she had, 26,000 emails in her inbox. I don't see how you can do that. But she won the award for that this morning. But anyhow, uh, it's, it's integrated into our work, and I'm just going to let that represent our work this morning. Sometimes we think of different vocations um, are more spiritual than others, and that's understandable. Let me put some couplings up here. Each coupling shows two different kinds of work. I'd like you to answer either to yourself or out loud. 
Which is more spiritual? Starting with building a luxury condo or building houses for habitat for humanity. Which is more spiritual? Obviously. Number two, waiting on customers at the outback or serving meals at the source. Yeah. Thirdly, driving an Uber for extra cash or driving an elderly neighbor to the doctor. Obviously. Number four, cleaning swimming pools on John's Island or baptizing people in swimming pools on John's <laughs> Island. Okay, and then fifthly, preaching the gospel or preparing people's tax returns. Okay, now, here's the thing. A lot of you already know this, but what if we said those are all equally spiritual? They're all equally important to God. It, there's all, those are all ways to connect and glorify God and to worship God. <clears throat> A lot of you already know that, but we still have this residual hierarchy in our minds that some vocations are callings of God and others are not. Now, part of what came out of the Protestant Reformation, you know, the Protestant Reformation, 14th, 15th, 16th century, John Calvin, Martin Luther, protesting against the organized church of that time. We often think of that as doctrinal in nature. <clears throat> Talk, differentiating between salvation by grace through faith versus salvation by works and the, the whole abuses and sale of indulgences and the nailing of the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, these great doctrinal issues. That was, yes, part of the Protestant Reformation. But also what came out of that was a different way of thinking about vocation, work. Previous to that, you had a hierarchy of spiritual work. So up here at the top, you had the priests and the nuns and the monks and the monasteries. And then down here was everybody else. You got the clergy and you got the laity down here. Well, what Martin Luther and other reformers said was no. All work, all vocations, as long as they're honest and they're not illegal, the all work is noble to God, is worthy to God, is a calling to God. Martin Luther said God is milking the cow through the hands of the farmer. And the reformer said the farmer who's plowing his field is worshiping God just as much as the priest who's over here burning incense in the sanctuary. They said the mother who's changing diapers in her home is just as close to God as the Pope. Well, that was scandalous in that day. But they were right. That is so true that we connect with God and we worship God in our work. The Bible says do all that you do with all your strength as working for the Lord. As serving the Lord, he's truly the one who is your master. That was said to slaves. It is true of us and our work as well. There's so many ways to worship God through our work. And one is through a ministry of competence. What Tim Keller, author, is called a ministry of competence. That's just learning to do your job, whatever it is. Even if it seems menial, even if it's frustrating in the modern-day work, area modernity working in a cube farm maybe you know what a cube farm is has anybody here ever worked in a cube farm i have i was in sales for several years like a big room like this that's divided up by those temporary felt walls into cubes you know the boss calls somebody's name and everybody pokes their head out of their cube like a prairie dog in a cube farm it's called a cube farm and dilbert has anybody did everybody read dilbert cartoons 
He was so good at skewering modern-day work because it seems so bureaucratic and frustrating sometimes, and the metrics that you have to hit seem counterproductive. Nevertheless, we have work to do, and all work is solving problems, serving people in one way or another, either directly or indirectly. And by becoming competent at that and continuing to learn to do it better and better, we minister to others through a ministry of competence. You have undoubtedly been ministered to through other people's jobs and work, a ministry of competence. You've also experienced a ministry of incompetence through people who weren't doing, doing their jobs right or doing them well. Guys, how many times we're driving to Home Depot, we're driving to Lowe's, and we've got some plumbing issue that we have to take care of at home. We're not exactly sure what we need, and we're praying on the way, oh, Lord, give me the guy in the plumbing department who knows what he's talking about. Not just the person that's hired off the street and getting the hourly wage, but the guy who knows plumbing, the guy in electric, who knows electrical, a ministry of competence. Uh, this building that was built, you know, that served the church or were comp we had to bring a person, we had a ministry of incompetence before that was holding us up, that set us back. We had water intrusion into our building, and then we brought a new supervisor on board who knew what he was doing, and we began to benefit from a ministry of competence. Our washing machine went out about six, weeks, six months ago. We had to replace it. Of course, if I'm going to spend more than $25, I do three hours of you know, research on the Internet, and I was re so I know more about washing machines than I, anybody should ever know now. But you know what I found out? They don't make them like they used to. They don't make them like they used to. Hundreds and thousands of reviews say, if you can get hold of one of the old washing machines with the agitator and the little dial that you turn, get that because those get the clothes clean and the new ones don't. All right. So I'm going on and on. But you, I could go on and on. But uh, you get the idea. It's a way of worshiping God in our work by being competent. And Brother Lawrence probably the most well-known writer of the past generation. He was a monk who served in a monastery, and his job was cooking food and washing dishes. And that was what he was doing most of the time. Brother Lawrence wrote, The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer, and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees and partaking of the Lord's supper. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to remember to connect with God and worship God at work. Number two, sitting in traffic and waiting. And here's something that we often experience in an average, ordinary day is sitting and waiting in traffic. Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, when was the last time you were stuck in traffic? Can you remember? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, two or three months ago. I'm out on 95. I'm on my way to Melbourne. It's a Friday, so where am I going? Church. You know me so well. So I'm on the way to the zoo, stuck in traffic, 30 minutes, got kids in the back, they're anxious, and uh, I had to wait. And I don't like to wait. I like to think of myself as efficient. When I read audiobooks or listen to them, it's always on at least one and a quarter speed, one and a half speed if possible. Want to get things done, don't want to be stuck, even when I'm just going to the zoo. I want to get there and get it done. But what happens to us when we get stuck in traffic is we are forced Sorry for putting my hands in my pockets, but they are so cold this morning. We are forced by our circumstances to practice an ancient spiritual discipline, which is the discipline of waiting, waiting on God. And we are reminded, aren't we, 
that as much as we like to think that we manage time and we're so productive and efficient that we do not control time. Only God is in control of time. and He slows us down sometimes. He slows us down and causes us to wait. Now, you people who honk in traffic jams, I judge you. What are you honking for? What are people honking for? They're like a goose caught in a trap. A honk, honk, honk. Nobody's going anywhere. But we all feel that sense of frustration. If my feelings could give expression, my feelings would be honking too. But uh, Jonathan Swift wrote the book, Gulliver's Travels. So you're familiar with Gulliver's Travels and the little Lilliputians that had him tied down for a while. You know, the Lilliputians, as they observed Gulliver through, through time, as they got to know each other, assumed that his God was his watch because he looked at it so often. Now, it wasn't a watch like we think a watch would have been a little clock that he carried with him, but he was constantly looking, checking his clock. And it was Jonathan Swift, it was the author's common, social commentary on people's obsession in his day with time and efficiency and managing time, how much more so now? By Lilliputian logic, the God for many of us would be our smartphone. Some of you are checking it right now, our smartphone, because we look at it so often. When we need to be reminded, again, it's God who's in control of time. I read one theologian who suggested that the root of all evil, now what, what, do, we, what do we think of as the root of all evil? Love of money. Love of money is the root of all evil. This theologian had a different perspective. He suggested that it's impatience. Now think about that, impatience. Uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So God wants us to have all good things. He does. He loves us, absolutely. Gracious towards us, treat us better than we deserve. His attitude towards us is one of goodness. He wants us to have all good things in his time. In his time. What gets us in trouble is when we're so impatient, we, can't, we don't want to wait on God's time. So we jump in line, or we jump the gun. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can have all the fruit. Just don't eat of that. They want knowledge. They want to be like God. So they jump ahead and partake of the fruit, and they experience the fall. Think of God coming to Abraham and Sarah. You familiar with that backstory in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah. God says, I know you're old. Sarah has not been able to conceive, but she is going to conceive. You're going to have a child, a boy. It's going to be a blessing to all nations. That's great. They're so excited. A year goes by, nothing has happened, and they start to get impatient. And so Sarah says, well, maybe God meant that we're supposed to conceive through a surrogate and take Hagar, and she can be the mother. And so that's what happened, and Hagar conceived, and God comes back and said, that's not what I intended. And they brought all kinds of drama and pain into their lives because of their impatience, and they jumped the gun. Think of Saul. Remember the story of Saul, the account of Saul, first king of Israel? God wants to make a dynasty out of his family. And Samuel the prophet comes to Saul, says, you're just getting started, go to such and such a city, wait there, don't do any." Don't do anything till I get there and do the sacrifices. So Saul's at the city, and time's going by, and he's checking his sundial. And, you know, Samuel's not arriving. It's getting late. The sun's going to go down. He says, oh, my goodness, we've got to get these sacrifices done. People are anxious. He says, bring me the knife. People say, well, wait a minute. You're not a priest. You, you, you can't do the sacrifices. Bring me the knife. 
He does the sacrifices, and as soon as he's done, he looks over, and here comes Samuel's bald head over the hill. And Samuel said, what have you done? You can't do that. Why did you do that? I couldn't wait. And Samuel said, God wanted to give you everything. He wanted to make a dynasty out of you, and now it's going to be taken away and given to someone else. And so the Messiah is the son of David and not the son of Saul. Impatience, the root of all evil. So how many times have we been tempted by impatience? We know we should wait. We know it's not God's way, but we're so anxious. Because we think of time. Our time here is so short. You only go around once in life. You've got to grab all the gusto. If you're going to have happiness, if you're going to have success, if you're going to have money, if you're going to have health, if you're going to have love and romance, you've got to get it now. Everybody else seems to be getting it, and I'm not. I don't have this. I don't have that. And so we're tempted to jump the gun, jump out of line with God's will and what God has clearly revealed, jump ahead in line, go outside, take a shortcut, and we wind up bringing pain and drama into our lives instead of waiting on God. A farmer could tell us, when a field lies fallow, it's not that nothing is happening. In that field, beneath the ground, the microorganisms are at work of breaking down nutrients and minerals. The ground during that fallow waiting period is being prepared for fruitfulness in the future. As we wait, it's not like nothing is happening. We're waiting and God is working His will in us and He's preparing the ground for fruitfulness to come. Robert Wilkin writes, the singular mark of patience is not endurance or fortitude, but hope. To be impatient is to live without hope. Patience is grounded in the resurrection. It is life oriented toward a future that is God's doing. And its sign is longing. Not so much to be released from the ills of the present, but in anticipation of the good to come. Heaven is so much of the equation for us, and we don't think about it as often as we should. And when I say heaven, I'm not talking about disembodied spirits floating on clouds. You know that. We are people on the way. So when, when you and I are stuck in that traffic jam, we're on the way. We're not where we were. We're not yet where we're heading. We're on the way. Well, that is our existence here on earth. This is not our home. We're heading to a, a, a different place. We're on the way. So we don't get too attached here. We don't think that this is all there is. And it's not that we don't care about here. We do. But we're going somewhere. Or rather, somewhere is coming closer and, or someone is coming closer and closer to us. We're all waiting. We're waiting for different things. We're waiting like the whole earth is waiting for Jesus and the sons of God to be revealed waiting. We're waiting for the resurrection. We're waiting for a new earth, a new life, and a new home. Just something to think about the next time we get stuck in a traffic jam, waiting on the Lord. And one more thing, a phone call. A phone call to a friend. I'm connecting that this morning with our church community. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. So maybe the best friend I ever had was back in Virginia. 
His name is Joe. We had ministry there for seven years at the church, a church in Norfolk. And Joe was an elder in the church, and I was the minister of the church, and, but we were the same age, and our families were comparable. And we were uh, kindred spirits. Do you know what I mean by that kind of a friend? You have that kind of a friend, or have had a kindred spirit friend. How many Friday nights we went over there, Tammy and I and our kids, played cards with Joe and Carol and their kid. Their kids played. Kids played for hours. We played cards late into the night, had a beef log and cheese and crackers to the wee hours for months and then years. So close. When I moved back to Florida, we would talk on the phone, Joe and I, about once a week uh, for a number of years until he couldn't any longer. But that friendship... I'm just using it. It's kind of symbolic. It was a spiritual friendship. He affirmed me in my faith. He helped me to be a better Christian and a better believer. Uh, he was so close that you know, we could challenge each other when we needed to be challenged. It was a, a call and response kind of friendship. So what we did this morning in that prayer, that's called a call and response. A call and response. As a congregation, those psalms are prayers to God, but we're also speaking to each other, aren't we? The faithful love of the Lord endures forever. We're affirming that. There are folks here this morning who are going through some pretty big challenges in their lives. Some of those are, are medical. Some of them may be financial issues. There may be estrangement and difficulty in families. All kinds of challenges. And these circumstances in our lives, sometimes they challenge us to believe that God is faithful and good and loves us. But we come together here in corporate worship and we sing and we pray, we partake of the word and the Lord's Supper, and we are affirming to each other, God is faithful. His faithful love endures. He is good. He loves you. He loves me. We have this in the corporate worship. This is important in our day and age. There have been several generations where teachers, authors, writers, preachers have emphasized a personal relationship with God. Almost to the exclusion of our corporate church family and body. Donald Miller is a popular Christian author. I've read some of his books. And Miller wrote, most of the influential Christian leaders I know do not attend church. And Donald Miller referred to the church as a university from which he has graduated. Christianity is never less than a personal relationship with God but it is always more than that. Because Jesus didn't die just to redeem a person. He died to redeem a people and to create a church body. The body is not perfect. The church is not perfect. If you've been around in church for any length of time, you may have some wounds or scars. You may have been hurt by somebody in the church. We all have. It's a testimony to why Jesus had to come and die on the cross for people like us. It's also a testimony that what we can be in the church are people who, once we've done wrong, can confess and repent and be forgiven and forgive and have grace and heal and continue our journey together. Grace. We need each other in the church. And we, we, we're going to remember this morning that we can say that about our church as insiders. None of us are on the outside looking in. Well, those people at that church, we are the people in the church. 
I have wounded people. And when I hear of sin or errors in the church or wounds, I'm culpable, and I have to admit that. But also, in the same breath, say, thank God and praise God for his healing grace. Trish Warren writes, We love people universally by loving the particular people we know and can name. We love the world by loving a particular place in it, like a a hill or a city or a block. Our love for the church universal is worked out in the hard pews or padded chairs of our particular local congregation. A local congregation is our small, concrete entry into the universal church. It is the basic unit of Christian community and the place where we encounter God in corporate worship and the Lord's Supper. The body of Christ is only known, loved, and served through the gritty reality of our local context. We're not going to be super compatible with everybody in our local church. Peter and Paul didn't always get along. Must have been awful awkward at that dinner party where Paul confronted Peter to his face, as we read about in Galatians. Tammy, don't invite Peter and Paul to the same dinner party again. And yet there was forgiveness and restoration, and they moved forward in the work of the kingdom. It's messy. But life is messy, and God takes us where we are. Call and response. Call and response. My friend Joe and I, we don't talk on the phone anymore because he got early onset dementia. He can't carry on a conversation on the phone. But he's a person on the way, just like me. And he and I are both looking forward to that destination and that person who's coming to meet us. And we will talk again one day. One day when the kingdom has come fully and the king is here with us and we're all in our resurrection bodies on the new earth and we get all that good. We get all the good that God has waiting for us. Our Father in heaven, remind us today in this, of the importance of our 24-hour Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of the worship that we do throughout that day. Remind us today that our work is a part of our worship, that we're not in control of time. We're all waiting. We're all waiting to die, just like the earth, and to be resurrected and renewed. And remind us that we're not alone. Uh, The church needs each of us, just like the body needs its hands, and we need the church your body, the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.